910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Be sure to check out our other resources, including blogs, posts, and our two award-winning books, No Half Truths Allowed and The Bible Blueprint. You can find everything on our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com, including information on our new book, The Final Exodus, Deciphering the Book of Revelation, due out September 1st. You can even contact us straight from the website if you have any questions, comments, or would like to inquire about us speaking at your next women's event. And be sure to follow us on all social media outlets. Welcome back. We've been spending the last eight weeks in the book of Ephesians in our series, The Truth Will Set You Free. This week, we're going to delve into the first part of Ephesians chapter five. Chris, I've often heard people say that cursing is not really a sin. And just to be clear, they're not talking about cursing that's using God's name in vain. They're talking about cursing that does not use God's name in vain. I don't think any Christian can argue that using God's name in a curse isn't a sin. I mean, there's a whole commandment dedicated to telling us it's a sin. And not to sidetrack, but, you know, using phrases like, oh, my God, can also be a sin. The rule is, if you're not talking to God or about God, get his name out your mouth. Yes, out your mouth. It's pretty clear cut. You know, but how about other curses? The argument is that they're just words and they're words that our society labels curses, but other societies now or in the past don't deem as foul language. And we could throw off color jokes in there too. Again, almost all Christians would agree that jokes that blatantly disparage an individual or a whole group of people are definitely sinful. But how about jokes that don't demean anyone per se and are just a little bit crude? The argument for both curses and crude jokes stems from the belief that God is more concerned with what is in your heart than he is with what is coming out of your mouth. Hmm. Well, scripture has something to say about both. In fact, Ephesians chapter five has something to say about both of those things and a lot more things like foolish talk, sexual immorality, idolatry, false teaching, darkness, disobedience, getting drunk and more. This chapter is jam-packed with stuff. So let's start diving in. Let's start with what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2. And this whole section here is labeled walk in love. But here's the two verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, you might be thinking, These verses don't mention any of the things we just said this chapter deals with, but don't worry, they're coming. But before Paul takes on all of those specific imperatives, he needs to set up the overarching imperative that should govern our whole Christian walk. And that overarching imperative has two main components to it. The first one's be imitators of God. And secondly, love as Jesus loves. Now, those are two pretty big things, Rose. (laughs) And, you know, this seems like it wouldn't be controversial at all. But remember, the Ephesus church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And after Paul pretty much schooled the Jewish Christians that the Gentiles were part of the family of God and didn't have to go through circumcision or keep the law like they had to in the past, Paul is now telling them to be imitators of God. This would have been a shock to many of them. And let's 
Think about this from their perspective. The Israelites held up God to be holy so far above men that they didn't even say his name out loud or write it out fully. Adam and Eve's sin was, at its core, them trying to be like God. In addition, the second commandment prohibited producing any likeness of God. We may have been created as image bearers of God, but we are sorely broken image bearers who were rightly separated from God. So Paul's words to be like God would have disturbed and confused the Jewish Christians, and it might have even angered them. In fact, it's very likely that Paul would have been right there with them before Jesus got a hold of it. Yeah, I think so too. But Jesus did get a hold of them and changed the lens through which Paul saw everything. Jesus is now that lens. The Jews' perception of God was accurate. He was and is far above man. And there is a huge gulf between man and God. Like you said, we were broken, sinful image bearers of God who were far off from him with no way to bridge the gap. But Jesus, but Jesus, by his incarnation, his death and his resurrection, was the bridge between God and us. And even though we still remain the same broken image bearers, Jesus has restored us. And he did that by imputing his righteousness to us. Jesus has made us free of our brokenness. And now we're able to rightly reflect the beauty and majesty of God. That's why we can now be imitators of God. And notice once again, we didn't do anything to gain the privilege of being imitators of God. It was only through the monergistic work of God. Absolutely. And Paul reflects that very thing in verse two, where he says to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus imputed his righteousness to us. He died to take away our punishment for our sin, and he was resurrected to obtain our victory over Satan and death. As a result of that, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to Satan or to death. He did all of that for us, and we did nothing. But in response to his doing that for us, and because we're now able to through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we need to be image bearers of God, specifically Jesus, who has shown what real love looks like. Love for others is an overarching theme of all scripture. Love for his people was the reason that God had mercy on them over and over and over throughout scripture. Love was the catalyst for Jesus coming. It was the catalyst for Jesus suffering and saving his people for himself. Love was what spurred the apostles and the others on to preach the gospel, despite the horrific persecution and horrific deaths that most of them dealt with. Yeah. And it should be that love that drives us. We're able to be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice if necessary, just as Jesus was. So that's the overarching imperative that precludes the specific imperatives Paul's about to give. He's going to show us how we practically live out being a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. So let's continue with Ephesians 5, 3 to 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Okay, so let's briefly look at the imperatives that Paul gives us. The first one, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. All three of these are related. All three things can be things that we do with our bodies and or our minds. And all three threaten our physical and our mental health, our sanctification, our witness, and definitely our image bearing of God. And worst of all, all three are idolatry. If we're sexually immoral, our bodies become our gods. If we're impure, our minds and our thoughts become our God. And if we're coveting things, our greed becomes our God. All three things are things that the unbelieving world is a slave to. But we aren't that slave anymore. We've been freed from that slavery. And because of that, we are free to live a new life. That's why Paul says putting these things off is proper among saints. So let's talk about sexual immorality. As we saw in chapter four, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So we need to treat our bodies accordingly. When we sleep with someone, we're connecting with them in the most intimate way. We're giving them access to an intimate part of ourselves, and they're giving us access to an intimate part of them. So when someone sleeps around, they're giving multiple people access to the intimate part of themselves. And this has three consequences. First, when we do marry, that means our husband or wife won't be the only person who's ever had access to that intimate part of ourselves. Second, when we do give intimate access to ourselves, especially if there's many, there's a possibility of leaving us broken, you know, heartbroken, physically broken, spiritually broken. And third, it's impossible to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification if you're in the midst of this kind of sin. If you lay claim to your body as completely yours to do with whatever you want, in other words, your body or sex is your God, that doesn't leave much room for you to be changed and transformed by the one true God. And we want to say that this does not mean that if you've sinned in this way, that you can't be redeemed and God can't heal you. He absolutely can. We are not saying that at all. We're just saying the idea of not being sexually immoral is really for our own good. It is absolutely for our best. And along that lines, not falling prey to this sin will save a lot of heartache and possibly a lot of scars. Exactly. And it goes for all kinds of sexual immorality. Impurity is pretty much, you know, the same thing, but impurity isn't just physical immorality. It can also be what we watch and what we think about and what we do and what we read. Maybe you aren't physically sexually immoral, but you watch pornography. You read graphically sexual romance novels, which I'm sorry to say are pornography. Yes. You watch racy or raunchy TV shows or movies. You don't have to have a special channel to do it anymore. Or maybe your impurity isn't even sexually related. Maybe you're unethical in your business practices or you use people for what you can get out of them. Maybe you're extremely selfish and uncaring when dealing with others. And we could go on and on and on with the list of what impurity entails. The definition of impure is anything mixed with foreign matter or something adulterated. For us as Christians, impurity is us mixing God's word and truth with worldly things that go against that truth. It's syncretism. And it quickly can become a, a God to us. 
We enjoy those TV shows, movies, books, videos, whatever. They give us pleasure and we don't want to give them up. We like making money in our job and getting things from other people. We don't want to have to give that up or our pleasure and satisfaction becomes our God in some other way. And just like sexual immorality, when we're worshiping that God, there's no room for sanctification by the Holy Spirit. And that takes us to the last of the three, covetedness. This is what the Jewish Christians wanted to avoid, the past sins of trying to be like God. But the sin of Adam and Eve and the Israelites was not that they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be God. And that's always a sin. Now, then, anytime. Adam and Eve were guilty of coveting the knowledge, power, and wisdom God had and wanting it for themselves. The Israelites were guilty of the same thing. They worshiped false gods trying to subvert the sovereignty of and obtain the power of the only true God. Coveting is wanting what someone else has, and it's comparable to sexual immorality and impurity because of what it makes people do to get what someone else has. It can soil you physically, mentally, and spiritually. It cheapens you and doesn't honor the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And like the other two, it becomes your God and your sanctification is stunted. And none of these three sins has any place amongst those whom God has saved. In fact, anyone who persists in these behaviors probably isn't really saved. And Paul says exactly that in verse five, where he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We skipped over verse four, but we will circle back to that now and circle back to our earlier discussion about whether curses, other than using God's name, of course, or off-color jokes or whatever are sinful or whether they're not. We already gave one excuse people give as to why it isn't sinful. Whether or not something is crude or offensive is looked at through the lens of a particular society. And that may be true to an extent. After all, the British term bloody, as in this bloody thing is so frustrating, was once considered a curse in the UK, but it no longer is. And it was never considered a curse word in America. People also say to look at the definitions of some words considered curse words. For example, one common curse is by definition just a female dog, and we all know what that is. (laughs) Another one means a fatherless child. So as some will say, these are just regular words. Additionally, we've heard people say that God knows what you're thinking, so you might as well say it. Well, before we address that reasoning, we need to start with what scripture says. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, granted, this imperative is vague and it's open to interpretation, so let's interpret it. Well, I think the best place to start is with other scripture. In Romans chapter 14, Paul gives us guidelines to use for this imperative here in Ephesians 5.4. Romans chapter 14 lays out how to deal with weaker brothers and sisters in the faith. First, Paul tells us that even those weaker in the faith are brothers and sisters. We're all equal once we belong to Jesus. But Paul goes on to say that none of us should be forced to act according to someone else's conscience 
on matters that aren't against scripture. He uses the example of meat sacrifice to idols. Christians knew then that there was no such thing as other gods, so sacrificing meat to those fake gods meant nothing. Christians could eat that meat without sinning. You know, if we were to translate this today, we could use drinking or dancing. Some Christians say you shouldn't drink or dance, but most of us know that there's nothing in scripture that prohibits that. There are, of course, limits, like don't get drunk, and we're going to look at that in a minute, or don't dance immodestly. But just because others say it's wrong to slow dance with our husbands or wives or do the electric slide or the Macarena or whatever, or to have a beer or glass of wine, doesn't mean we have to comply because scripture doesn't say we do. And that's absolutely true. But Paul then goes on to say in Romans 14 that those of us who are stronger and more mature in our faith should not cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. So if you have a Christian over for dinner who believes that drinking is wrong, just don't have alcohol. Even though you know it's perfectly okay to have a drink, why upset them? As Ligonier Ministry says, it is not a matter of indifferent externals. In these things, we are to have love for each other, respecting the scruples of the individual as well as his or her liberties. Patience and forbearance are called for in matters of externals, but internal fruit of the Holy Spirit must be made manifest. And that's the end of the quote. So what does this have to do with filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking? Well, it's the same principle. Now, there are things that are obviously filthy or is foolish talk and completely inappropriate for Christians to be spouting. And those are pretty obvious. I don't think we have to go into that. At least I hope that they're obvious. But there may be other things that aren't so obvious. Like some people have said, There are things that by definition aren't a curse, but just used as curses in our society or things that aren't blatantly offensive, maybe just a little off color. What about these things? That's where Romans 14 comes in to help. If we're causing weaker brothers or sisters or possibly could cause weaker brothers or sisters to stumble by what we say, then we need to not do it. Even if we don't think there's anything wrong with it. And Chris, I'll give a personal example. In some of our early episodes, we got pretty impassioned by the subjects we were talking about, and we used the word crap. I think it was in Christian Witches and the Third Eye because we were really upset by the false teaching and heresy that was going on. Now, I'll be honest, we're okay with that word, but we received a few messages and comments from people who were offended by us using that word. So maybe you haven't noticed but we no longer use that word. And I apologize for just using it. It was just to make an example. But that was an easy compromise on our part to keep other Christians from being offended. Yeah. So the rule should be what we talked about in the last episode. If something's about to come out of your mouth that might be offensive to some or might hurt your witness in some way, then don't say it. And of course, we aren't talking about speaking biblical truth. That's not what we're talking about at all. That old adage about making sure what you say is true, kind, helpful, and necessary is a pretty good rule to follow. And Paul affirms this by saying, replace this kind of talk with thanksgiving, meaning language that glorifies God and builds people up, language that's true, kind, helpful, and necessary. So what about the reasoning that God knows what we're thinking anyway? We may as well say it. I got another personal example. I had a woman confront me with this years ago in my old church. 
I say, oh my gosh, oh my goodness or goodness. And she said that I was being fake because God and everyone else knew that I meant, oh my God. She even said that she uses the F word because God knows she's thinking it and she doesn't want to lie to God. Well, there's two major flaws in her logic. First, let me say that I could care less what anyone else thinks what I mean when I say gosh or goodness. I only care about what God thinks. And because of that, I have been transformed by the renewing of my mind. I assure you that now when I say gosh or goodness, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking of using God's name in vain and pretending I'm not. And it takes a lot of practice. It did in the beginning for me. But if you substitute those words or other words, instead of using God's name or even substitute other phrases instead of curses, that'll be what you think. You'll train your mind. You'll renew your mind. And that leads to the other problem with our logic. If you just use the excuse, well, God knows what I'm thinking, I may as well say it, instead of trying to grow and not say it, you'll never be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You'll just stay in the same place. Yeah, I totally agree. We aren't supposed to stay in our bad behavior because we think that we're being true to our true selves before God. He already knows our true selves. He's trying to transform us and grow us to be our really true selves. So that's just a bad excuse for not wanting to be transformed. And, you know, okay, so that was a lot for only five verses here today so far, but it was important stuff. And let's move on. Ephesians 5, 6 to 14 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that's the end of the scripture. In the first five verses, Paul was addressing our conduct within ourselves. Now he's addressing our conduct to the outside world. Yeah, let no one deceive you with empty words. We could do a whole episode on this one verse. In fact, we're going to be doing a whole series on it. So I'll give the plug right now. Our next series after this one is going to be real truth about false teaching. And we're going to do several episodes on the deception of empty words that are being peddled as Christians. So we're not going to delve too deeply into that now, except to say that this is very serious stuff. Paul makes it clear that false teaching and being led astray by deception comes with serious consequences. He says, because of these things, that's the false teaching and deception, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So like I said, stay tuned for much, much more on false teaching and deception. Just going to have to wait a few episodes. But because of the consequences of God's wrath on those who disobey by teaching lies, Paul tells us to not be a part of it. Don't be partners with them. This is the wide path that Jesus tells us leads to destruction at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Yes, it is. And next, in verses 7 to 9, Paul gives an imperative by restating an indicative. He says, 
And I'll read the New Living Translation just for a different interpretation since we've already read from the ESV. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. And that's the end of the scripture. The ESV starts with the word therefore. And I think that's important because in light of the wrath of God coming upon the sons of disobedience who deceive people with false teaching, as Paul says in verse six, we are not to partner with them. We are not to participate in them, depending on which translation you use. Both say the same thing, have nothing to do with it. And here's why. Because those who deceive people with false teaching and understand that Paul is not talking about Christians who may have incorrect theology. He's talking about deceitful, false teachers. And they are out there. We're going to name some of them. (laughs) Yeah. And there, I mean, there are false teachers that they've been taught wrong. And so they're teaching other people wrong. But there are false teachers that know exactly what they're doing. Absolutely. And those people are pagans. They are wicked. They are still dead in their sin, no matter how good they sound. And they're living in darkness because they're blind to the truth. That's right. Those who try to deceive about God are dark, but we've been regenerated. We've been given the truth and we've been given the ability to see the light, to see Jesus. And we need to live in that light. This is what a pastor from City Church in Tallahassee says. I love this quote. Our foundation and source of all light that shines into the darkness, exposing sin and illuminating righteousness is Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the source of all light and righteousness, makes us able to be raised from death as he rose from the dead. And that's the end of the quote. Paul reiterates all of this in Colossians chapter three. We are not who we used to be. We no longer belong to this world, which is ruled by Satan. We've been set apart as holy unto God. We've been woken up to our own sin and the sin of the world. Jesus is the light and he's cut through our former darkness. The light is the lens through which we need to look at everything. That's the indicative. It's who we have become because of what God has done for us. The imperative is to live like it, to stop doing all the things that Paul listed. And the guidelines Paul gives in this chapter about how to do this is walk in love and walk in light. Yeah. And he goes on to tell us not just to stay away from the darkness that we see in the world. He tells us to expose it. Verse 11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So why does Paul tell us to expose it? For those who haven't been regenerated, They aren't going to see their sin and will probably declare war on us for even suggesting that they're doing sinful things and deserving condemnation. And we've seen that throughout history, starting with John the Baptist calling out King Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife, all the way to the Reformation when the men of God called out the Catholic Church for their corruption and their perversion of the word of God. And even today, when Christians in parts of the world are being imprisoned, or put in labor camps and even executed for preaching the gospel. And how about this one, Rose? When people get slammed for exposing false teachers and they say, oh, you're not being Christian like to them. Well, Paul exposed them for a reason. That's right. And like you said, there's a distinction between people with incorrect theology and a false teacher. And you're right. False teachers need to be called out. 
And to the people who say you shouldn't expose them, it's wrong. If they're not a false teacher, then they can easily justify what they're teaching with scripture. Yeah. If they're, if they're a teacher, they shouldn't need you to defend them. They should be able to defend themselves with scripture. And if they can't, absolutely. There's a problem. The labor camps and Christian imprisonment for preaching the gospel hasn't come to the United States yet, which is where we're from. But, you know, here many have been attacked and their livelihoods have been destroyed because they won't agree to make a cake for a same-sex marriage or because they gave money to a cause that goes against the radical left. And we could go on and on and on. It's just like we talked about in an earlier episode in this series. Those living in darkness, those who are dead in their sin, do not want their sin exposed. They feel it. They know it. We talked about this. And why such a strong reaction from them? Because like Paul also told us earlier in Ephesians, because deep down, whether they admit it or not, they know God exists. They just do. They do. And when we expose their sin and darkness, we hit a nerve. Even if they swear up and down, they don't think they're doing anything wrong. Deep down, like you said, Chris, even if they don't realize it, they know the truth. They know there's a holy God whom they are mocking. And that leads right into Paul's next words in Ephesians 5, 12 to 14. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now, you might be wondering, why does Paul tell us to expose things done in the darkness, but then says it's shameful to speak of the things they do in secret? So, Chris, I'm going to pass that off to you. Because it's Paul and he wants us to be confused. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Martin Lloyd-Jones does a great job of explaining this, so I'll really turn this over to him. Uh, this is in his sermon called Exposed by the Light, and I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. Me too. Uh, Dr. Jones points out that before we were regenerated, we weren't just living in darkness, we actually were darkness. And now for those of us who have been saved, we aren't just living in the light, we are light in Jesus. It's not enough for us to know the difference between darkness and light. It's not enough for us to avoid the darkness and stay away from the sins of the world. We aren't to hole up with our beliefs and avoid the dark world. We're to live our lives in view of everyone and proclaim the gospel with our words, absolutely, but also with our actions and our lives. We need to show those living in darkness what living in light looks like. When we live our lives as light, living in truth, standing for truth, witnessing truth, you know, a byproduct of that will be that the darkness is exposed. just happens that way. Yeah, some will want to destroy us, but there may be others that the Holy Spirit's regenerating that will respond and repent and turn to Jesus. And we were talking, you were talking earlier, Rose, about they feel their sin. They feel that they're sinning. I don't, for myself, if I look back on my life before I was saved, every time I knew I was sinning. Yeah. I mean, I knew about God, but there was just a heaviness there. And there is even still when we sin, I think there's a heaviness that we just know. Yeah. And even I wasn't even close to walking with God and didn't really even acknowledge him. If someone had pointed out sin to me, I could see easily see me attacking them. And it oh, would yeah. have come from a place of, you know, my guilty conscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
living out our Christian walk in full view of the world will, by its very nature, expose darkness. Like you said, Chris, it just happens. As Paul says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now, this is a confusing verse, and you said you were kidding, but Paul can be a little confusing at times. Maybe the original Greek was a little less confusing. We can all agree that anything exposed by light becomes visible. I mean, that's a matter of science. You have a dark room, you turn a light on, everything's visible. And this means that the best way to combat sin, which is darkness, whether it's for ourselves personally, whether it's within our church body or out in the unbelieving world, is to expose it. Sin that is kept hidden or quiet is sin that controls. But once it's exposed and brought into the light and shown as sin against God, there's no more denying that it's sin. So it loses some of the power. I mean, isn't that the motto of AA? Your first step is admitting you have a problem. Yeah. But the next part of Paul's thing, anything that becomes visible is light might not be so obvious. So I'm going to defer to James Fawcett and Brown. And they say, everything that is made manifest is light. The devil and the wicked will not suffer themselves to be made manifest by the light, but love darkness though outwardly the light shines around them. Therefore, light has no transforming effect on them so that they do not become light. But, says the apostle, you being now light yourselves by bringing to light through reproof those who are in darkness will convert them to light. Your consistent lives and faithful reproofs will be your armor of light in making an inroad in the kingdom of darkness. And maybe their commentary is just as confusing as Paul. But the only way to cut through darkness is light. And if you've ever been in a dark room and you've opened the curtains just a slither, that light comes shining in and it's it's such a stark contrast to the darkness. Yeah, the darker the room, the less light it takes to make a statement. Good point. You know, and... Well, <laughs> You can't light, you can't illumine darkness with more darkness. That's right. <laughs> you can't. That's right. So I love that commentary from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. I, I think their commentary is pretty good a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Paul's going to show us what this armor of light is in chapter six. Paul ends this section with a quote that has its roots in several Old Testament places like Isaiah 51, 17, 52, 1, 61, and in Malachi 4, verse 2. And it's just an affirmation of all that Paul just got done saying. And I'm quoting scripture here. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that's the end of it. Time's getting short. But we want to finish out this beginning section of Ephesians 5 with verses 5 to 19. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's the end of the scripture. You know, again, Paul packs a lot in these five verses. Let's start with verse 15, where Paul tells us to walk carefully and make the best use of our time because the days are evil. Paul gives a similar admonishment to the church in Colossae as well. He says in Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, here's John Calvin's take on this. If believers must not neglect to drive away the darkness of others by their own brightness, how much less ought they be blind as to their own conduct in life? Paul enjoins them to regulate their life circumspectively as wise men who have been educated by the Lord in the school of true wisdom. Our understanding must show itself by taking God for our guide and instructor to teach us his own will, end of quote. So in other words, Paul is telling the Christians in both the Ephesians church and the Colossians church and us, that it's not enough to just stand against the darkness of the world, exposing it. We need to be calling out our own darkness and exposing it. Repentance needs to be a staple in our prayer life. By regularly examining ourselves, exposing our own sin and repenting of it, that's how we gain true wisdom. And that's how God becomes the sovereign guiding force in our life. When we're in a posture of regular examination and repentance, that's when the Holy Spirit can work the most efficiently in us. And when he tells us to make the best use of our time because the days are evil, he's telling us here that our time on earth here is short. So use it wisely. Use it to think bigger, pray bigger, worship bigger. Be eternally minded while we're on earth because our time on earth is a blip compared to eternity. In other words, use your time on earth to further the kingdom of God, walking in love, walking in light, teaching the gospel to anyone that you can. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't have jobs, doesn't mean we shouldn't have hobbies or parties or anything that isn't necessarily connected to Christianity. God gave us a world of things to enjoy and we should enjoy them but we should never enjoy them at the expense of our Christian walk. Meaning, you know, I love to play golf. I played this morning. I play in a weekly ladies league. I play with my husbands and my sons and with anyone else who would like to play. And I wish you would, Rose. <laughs> Not you know, coordinated but, enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't say that. But, you know, I don't forget who I am when I'm on the golf course. And um, I, that doesn't mean I am walking in the light every single time, every single minute, because I know plenty of times I've hit a really bad ball and I don't, I know bad things come out of my mouth sometimes, but I'm just saying I need to remember who I am on the golf course and I should walk in that. Our first label should always be that I'm a Christian. And in my case, I'm a Christian who loves to play golf and I'll look for ways to show my faith and to witness to people or do good to people while I'm playing. I was praying about being able to do that this year. This was our first morning. Um, but it means that I, I should always comport myself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And like I said, I'm not perfect at it. I'll be the first to admit that. And, you know, when I don't, I need to repent. And right. And none of us are ever going to get this right. 
but knowing it and striving for it and repenting when we don't get it right is exactly what transforms us. And this is exactly Paul's point in the last verse in this section, and I'll read him again. He says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we sing hymns to each other to communicate. Because that would just be, that would be We could do an episode like that, Rosa. I don't know if anybody would come back and listen. (laughs) Paul is giving something symbolic here. He uses another therefore. And the therefore is therefore in light of the Ephesian Christians being told to walk carefully and making the best use of their time, Paul is giving them ways to do just that. Don't get drunk on wine. Getting drunk on wine, getting drunk is a sin, but getting drunk on wine was a vice that particularly plagued many in Ephesus. For the pagans in Ephesus, getting drunk with wine was accompanied by festivals, which were basically orgies in honor of the pagan god, Bacchus. During those festivals, men and women worshiped this false god by becoming drunk, running through the streets and fields, singing wild songs, and just crying and screaming out loud. Must have been something to say. (laughs) Just sitting there thinking, that does not sound like fun. No. It doesn't. Oh, That's probably why they got drunk to do it. But, you know, that's why Paul follows this up with be filled with the Spirit, and addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, doesn't say with your mouth, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's telling them to replace the dark, ungodly pagan practice that you just talked about, Rose, with godly things. And like we've mentioned several times now in the last few episodes, it's not just about stopping these things. It's replacing with godly things. It's almost always a replacing with the godly things. Yeah. Things that show you're a new creation. Paul is giving them appropriate means of worshiping the one true God. Paul was speaking into the Ephesians specific situation, but his principle is universal. Christian worship should stand out in strong contrast with the wild and dissolute habits of the pagan. And that should sting a lot of churches who are trying to make worship look more worldly so that they can attract unbelievers. We're not to conform to the world's idea of what worship and honor should look like. We aren't to use their standards on what kind of music should be played or how the light should be set or how hip our pastors should be. So many churches are doing just that for the wrong reasons and it's wrong. And, you know, and Paul blatantly says it's wrong right here. That's right. There is a difference between making people feel comfortable in your church and compromising worship and truth to conform to the world. Yeah. Chris, I think the best way to end this episode is once again, pulling out Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This verse perfectly sums up all that Paul has taught in the beginning of Ephesians 5. 
And that's a good place to end today. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't seen the cover of our new book, The Final Exodus, Deciphering the Book of Revelation, check it out on any of our social media pages. Have a blessed day, everybody.